everyone, and welcome to Clitastic Chronicles, a pleasure-positive podcast created by smile makers for people with a clitoris. I'm Cecile, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Donna Oriowo. Dr. Donna Oriowo holds a Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a double Master's in Social Work and Education for Human Sexuality, and a PhD in Human Sexuality. In addition to her impressive academic track record, she has built a not-right, a sex therapy practice. Donna focuses a lot of her work on the impact of colorism and texturism on black women's self-esteem and sexual well-being. Today, we discuss with her the intersectionality of race and sexuality. Let's get started. I am Dr. Donna Oriowo. I'm a sex and relationship therapist in the Washington, D.C. metro area here in the United States. I focus in on working with Black women, especially on issues related to mental health and sexuality, because the two go so far hand in hand. I specifically focus even within there. There's another specific focus, which is around colorism and texturism. So how our skin tones and our hair textures impact our sexuality as well as our mental health. Okay. So that's in a, in a nut, what I do. Okay. Awesome. Uh, actually, the first question that I wanted to ask you is exactly on what you've mentioned, like colorism and texturism, because I think those are new words for most people in our audience. Can you tell us a bit more about that behind what you just shared? Absolutely. So colorism is the hierarchical preference, not even preference, but systematic sort of moving toward Um, lighter skin versus darker skin. So to say that um, someone that is white or European in their looks, so in their skin tone and in their hair texture, so a straighter hair texture and a whiter skin tone, that this is not just preferred, but systematically chosen over those who have darker skin tones and kinkier hair. So the closer you are to Afrocentric beauty, the worse off you are. The closer you are to Eurocentric beauty, the better off you are. So that sort of bridges the gap between both. Now, I'd really like to go back more on the topic of intersectionality of race and sexuality because you have extended expertise as a Black sex therapist. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to ask you, what is your analysis on how race impacts our approach to sex? And our ability to enjoy our sexuality. So I know it's a huge question. And it is. Your your race culture wholly impacts your sexuality, period. We live in a white supremacist world. Regardless of where you live in the world, this is a white supremacist world. Generally speaking, whatever Europe, whatever America is doing, these things are looked to as being at the head. Right. So they're looked at at oftentimes as an example. Hopefully, sometimes it should be an example of what not to follow, but sometimes it's an example of what to follow, what to do. When you are, which also means that America and Europe often set the stage for what we think about other people's cultures and races. So, which ones are valued versus which ones are not? White folks' sexuality, European sexuality, white Americans' sexuality. Is often seen as normal. It's fine. It's it's regular. Even when you do research, like if you were to look up something like, oh, condom use in, I don't know, condom use in women, it will give you condom use in white women unless 
you put that you're looking for Asian, that you're looking for African, that you're looking for Black, that you're looking for Indigenous, that if you do not put that other word, that other characteristic, that other defining thing that you're looking for, to say that you're looking for Black sexualities, you will not find it, which basically allows us to continue to elevate white sexualities as being part of a norm and everybody else then becomes othered. So then it's like, oh, well, then what does Black sexuality look like? And Black sexuality is often framed in a space of deviance, that there's something wrong with the way that, especially like Black Americans, do their sexuality, right? There's this idea that Asians, specifically Asian women, specifically Japanese and Chinese Asian women, that they are this exotic sort of beauty. And it makes them a little bit more desirable. But at the same time, there's, a, there's an idea of sexual deviance there. When we're talking about Latin American folks, Latinx people, there's this, oh, they're sassy, spicy sort of sexuality that they may, you know, like they may cuss you out a little bit, but, you know, they're exotic and beautiful and makes them also just seen as desirable, but deviant. That there's this emotion in it. And remember, we already do not value emotion. So the emotion in the Latinx sexuality is both coveted and seen as a lesser than. And then you have all these pieces. So the racism that is, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, worldwide and how we interact or how we think or how we talk about certain people in certain groups ends up being installed into the sexuality and how we think about them. So, I mean, oftentimes I think about things through the lens of America because I am in America. I'm Nigerian American, so I'm first gen born to this country. So I was born here and I was raised here, but I was raised by parents who immigrated here. So that offers a different lens and a different context. But the the main thing being that there's still this idea that there's something wrong with everybody's sexuality unless you're white. There is a normalization of the sexuality of some and the, the deviance or is seen as being deviant for others. So Asian men, for example, are seen as not as not really being sexual at all, that they're they're considered not really all that sexy. There's some dating apps and things here. One of them, I can't remember which one, they did a, a study to see who was most desired and who was least desired. And what they found is that white men were very heavily desired. Asian men were at the bottom. No one wanted to be with Asian men. Black women are also at the very bottom, along with those Asian men, as far as who is desired. Asian women were very desired. So there's this juxtaposition that is then based on one's gender performance, so whether or not one appears to be male or female, but then on one's uh, race that allows one to be considered desirable or not desirable according to both sex or gender performance and race. So it's, it ends up being, well, what is the mixture that you have? What is the dominant culture where you are? And how then does all of this play in? Because, for example, Nigeria... I'm going to argue and say there are a lot of Black people in Nigeria, <laughs> just, just for the sake of it, right? And yet there is still a leaning toward American and Eurocentric standards. 
as far as beauty, as far as desirability, that this plays out because they were colonized. The number one skin bleaching use in the world is Nigeria. We don't always talk about that, but it is Nigeria, which makes lighter skin Africans, lighter skin African women more desirable. And if you can get an American, sometimes this is seen as a boom. You won. If you can get a European, this is also seen as a win because then you're also able to travel. So travel a little bit more freely. There, there are guarantees that you're able to have. So, and, and then when you're thinking about it, as far as other cultures as well, and places around the world, the, the desirability politics play a huge role in whether or not somebody is desired or not desired. And if you are desired or not desired by the people around you, it can also impact whether or not you feel desirable in yourself. And what then you do or don't do to change what you look like in order to meet the gaze of others. And usually this gaze is uh, the hegemonic, cis, Eurocentric male gaze. Because we're looking at white men, get, white men get to determine what is considered beautiful and desirable for all people around the world. Which is why there's so much use of bleaching creams, why there has been so much use of relaxers why there is a desire to fashion oneself specifically out based off westernized beauty ideals. So you have so many people like in Asia who will get the eyelid surgery or who will do what they can to change what they look like just enough to be seen as desirable by American Western sort of standards as opposed to what might have been their own standards if it were not for world globalization, colonization, and domination. Okay, then I have two questions following up. The first one is, how do you see that play out in your practice with your patients? Is it like, you've mentioned a lot, the word desirable, desirability. Is, mm-hmm. is this the main way that you see that play? Like people feeling not desirable enough because of what they've been taught that their race is on the scale of desirability? Yep. Between that piece as well as the deviance piece. So on the one end, it's who's going to want me if I'm this dark skin, kinky haired, fat, black woman? Who's going to want me? Because this is, you're at the very bottom of the totem pole by way of your skin tone, by way of your hair texture, by way of your body type, that these things are all considered to be undesirable. Who's going to want me? This leads, This can often lead to settling in relationships. This can often lead to abusive relationships where one stays because who else is going to want me, right? It leads to not speaking up for yourself in sex about the type of sex that you're actually wanting to experience. It can lead to engaging in sexual behaviors that you, you have no desire for. It can lead to, I mean, there's so many things just in there. In and of itself, it can also lead to um, spectatoring. So wondering, trying to make yourself look more desirable in the process of sex, which basically has you out, almost like out of body experience. So like you're outside of your body looking down on the scene, like, oh, do I look cute? Do I need to arch my back? Do I need to, you know, lean this way? No, I don't want my belly to look like that. So maybe I should put it this way, this way. So instead of being in your body and exploring and enjoying your pleasure, You're in your head wondering what you look like to your partner. And thus, you're now separated from your orgasms. I'm like, what orgasms are you supposed to have 
if you're in a space where you are evaluating what you look like with such a heavy hand, you know? On the other end, there's deviance. On the deviance sense, Black American women, for example, dark-skinned Black women, there's this idea that you cannot be raped. That your sexual desire, you, you desire sex so much that if someone were to rape you, they would be doing you a favor. That you are so undesirable that if someone were to rape you, they would be still doing you a favor. There's this idea that your sexuality borders on masculinity. And that there's something then wrong with you for being that dang on sexual, to, for being fast. That, that is a label that they may give to a young Black girl who, who, may not, who may or may not know anything about sexuality. You know, they could be five, ten, but because they, their bodies may have started to develop with their, their buttocks, their breasts, whatever. If there's a development in the body, that is seen as now them being fast. Are then there's an adultification that happens, which is also a racist practice. Now that their bodies are developing, that now they must be an adult and treated as such, which can lead to grown men and women raping children. Through this process, it's, it's like, well, you have some people who then will divorce themselves from their sexuality in the sense that I don't want anyone to see me as sexual. I don't, so like, I don't want to be seen as that girl. So you divorce yourself from your sexuality, which is for me why it's so wonderful to see like Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B, to see, you know, so many rappers, specifically women rappers, talking so plainly about their their sexuality and owning that sexuality and saying that, you know, like girls need love too, like Summer Walker. There's this resurgence that women also desire sex and that it's okay for them to do so. But even, even so, we, we end up talking in a lot of ways about the Madonna, the Madonna horror complex. So on the one end, trying to make sure that you're looking like a good girl, but there's a desire for sex. And now this desire makes you a whore. So that makes you deviant, which also makes you worthy of rape. So trying to find the line to walk even within those dichotomies can be ridiculous. You've mentioned two disconnects as consequences of that. One that is a disconnect from your body and your ability to orgasm because you don't consider yourself desirable enough, so you're worried about how you look. And the other disconnect you've mentioned is the one from your disconnect from sex because it has yep. become this very scary, aggressive, violent thing that society is throwing at you before you're even ready for it. How exactly. can you work on that with your patients to like make them reconnect and make... Like take back their orgasms and their sexuality on their own terms. Honestly, um, there's so many ways. But number one, we work on the self-esteem. We have to. We work on the depression and the anxiety. We, we work on coping skills as well as digging deeper about where these things come from. But then there has to be deliberate work to reconnect to the sexuality. So one of the ways that I like to do that like I'm a I'm a bibliophile. I love books. Um, so I usually recommend books. There are two folk that I really adore, um, Delicia Sa and um, Rafaela Fialo. They have this thing called Afrosexology. They're on Instagram, but you know, Afrosexology, and I think then there's like an underscore. But they have this book called Solo Sex. And it's uh, it's all about reconnecting 
to one's sexuality. It's it's a workbook to to sort of work through some of those things. So I'll have clients go through a little bit at a time and we're discussing and we're discovering it and we're talking about it in terms of self-esteem. We're talking about it in terms of anxiety and depression. So we're bringing in all this work together so that they can understand where the disconnect with their sexuality came from. And then they can tell me how they want to reconnect to their sexuality. But we also are adding in practices that do not rely on a partner, but rely completely on the self. Mm -hmm. So what are the things that make you feel sexy? What are the things that make you feel desirable? What are the things that make you, what are the things that make you feel attractive or things that, you know, that you find to be sexy just in general? So inanimate objects or or not, whatever it is, just like being able to identify all these things and really starting to do a pleasure mapping. So what are the things that bring you pleasure? Because we, we've learned how to deny ourselves pleasure in all areas of our life. So even just finding the pleasure at work can also help you find the pleasure at home. Generally speaking, whatever happens in one place happens in other places. So find pleasure at work, you'll start finding some at home. Find pleasure with your friends, you'll start finding pleasure with your family. Find pleasure with yourself, you may find pleasure with your lover. So we work very deliberately on where we're going to find pleasure. And by the time we get to the other end of where else they've been now experiencing pleasure because they've worked so hard on these ones, there's an amplification of the pleasure that they're seeing just in general. And a reconnection of pleasure to the body And that pleasure does not have to be sexual pleasure. It can be eating ice cream is a pleasurable act. I love eating ice cream. And to do so without guilt, especially depending on one's body size, you can have a desire for donuts and donuts bring you pleasure, but then you feel shame and guilt. So then how do we work out the shame and guilt and recognize that pleasure is just something that we get to have? So when we do that, we also are able to connect them back to their sexuality because pleasure Pleasure is a part of your sexuality, regardless of what you're doing. Anything that brings you pleasure, to me, is part of your sexuality. For me, it brings me pleasure to buy books. So I buy them and I read them and I smell them. And for me, they're a full sensory experience. The turn of the page, the smell of the book, the look of it, the feel of it. To me, this is a full sensory experience. So then when I am doing something else, it also is a full sensory experience. Ice cream for me is a full sensory experience. No, it's not just on the tongue. You don't just taste it. You smell it. You hear what it feels like when your spoon scrapes across the carton. You, you You can hear that. You can smell it. You can taste it. You can feel the coldness on your tongue, on the sides of your mouth, on your teeth. So then you become fully engaged in it, which means that you, you're learning mindfulness. Yeah. Through the bring you pleasure, there's a mm-hmm. mindfulness component. And when you go into a space where I'm just like, okay, I would like you to practice some of this stuff with yourself. So maybe um, let's have a masturbatory weekend. Do a masturbatory practice, something that brings you pleasure that by your own hand, bring, bring yourself pleasure. Now it's now we're connecting it back to the mindfulness, mm-hmm. to being fully engaged. Now it's, oh, I like the feel of my, my, my hand um, on my cheek or uh, you know, creating a full sensory experience. Oh, I lit some candles. So the smell of the candles now got associated with this mindfulness and this sexuality and being in, in, ingrained in that piece. And now you're able to access pleasure without guilt and without shame. That it's okay for you to have it, which means now you're in a position to share it with partners or partners. I love, partner. I love the, 
that that journey that you invite your patients in, like really a pleasure discovery journey, like a way to reconnect your body through mm-hmm. a positive experience and through like noticing all the positive experiences that you can have on a daily basis without being focused on chasing orgasms as a very performative approach to sex. I do have an, another question uh, because you mentioned how those challenges with not feeling desirable or feeling defiant. This is kind of, to me, the way I hear it is kind of like an externally induced trauma, uh, which is always like externally induced. But when we deal with trauma and we've talked about trauma with someone recently and like, so you have a perpetrator and that perpetrator may go away. Uh, But when you're talking about something that is institutionalized, you're not getting rid of the perpetrator, like the, the people you work with, like then they go back to the world and they're still like institutionalized racism, like those issues that you mentioned, they are still true on a daily basis. How do you help them like build distance with that or still manage to build their own rules and heal that trauma, even though the perpetrator is still just out there when they walk at the door? I love this question. And this goes for everybody. The institutions of patriarchy and racism are harmful for everyone, period. So, and that's, to me, that is a worldwide thing. That is not an American thing. That is not a European thing. That is a worldwide, this is a worldwide issue. The way that we do patriarchy, the way that we do racism, these are all in service of something, and that's capitalism. If you can make people feel really horrible about themselves, somebody can get paid. Not, not just thinking about therapists getting paid off trying to help people heal or anything like that. I mean that when you feel bad about what you look like, we go buy makeup, we go buy hair things, we go buy skin things. They told us that you know aging is, is an ugly thing and you don't want aging to happen to you, so you got to use age-defying creams and things like that that are going to make you look young forever and glowy and dewy and all this other stuff. So there are billion-dollar corporations built off your insecurities. I ask my clients to think about who got paid today from you feeling like shit. So for me, this is a this means that it's a lifelong journey. It means that you're going to constantly be doing work. That you're sometimes I have to remind. I, I'll say all out like, "Ooh, you feel anxious. Why do you feel anxious?" And I have to remember, what did I look at? What did I watch? What did I listen to? What was What is going on in my environment that made me feel anxious? And then I ask myself, okay, is there anything that you can do about it in this moment? Or is there something that you could do about it later? Yes or no? If I can, then I do. If I can't, then I don't. I will journal about it as a way to get it out of my system. And sometimes that in itself is just effective by itself. Mm. But same thing with within the context of sexuality, as well as the mental health piece, being able to be like, oh, I'm feeling like X. Why do I feel like this? Where did this feeling come from? What's going on in my environment that made me feel this way? So like when I feel like, oh, I should go put on makeup. Wait, pause. Why? Why do you need to put on makeup? Do you want to put on makeup or do you feel like you have to put on makeup? Because it's not the what that's important, it's the why. If I want to put on makeup because I like it, that's different than I'm putting on makeup because it is expected of me to wear makeup to be or show up in this space. 
So we go so, back to the emotionally focused therapy. Basically. To reconnect with what you're feeling and why. What's the drive of the actions or your thoughts right now? And going back exactly. to... Exactly. Awesome. Awesome. All the things, and, they, they, they come back to each other. They connect. They do. <laughs> Is there any last thing that you would like to share with us before we part ways? Because we've covered so many topics. Like any last words of wisdom that you want to leave our audience with? <sighs> Uh, last words of wisdom. I think for me, it's, I think the main thing here is just remembering that regardless of what you look like, regardless of your job, regardless of the people that like you, regardless of the people that don't like you, that you have value, period, that you cannot earn it and that it cannot be taken away because you were born, you have value. You are complete, not completed which means that you have everything that you need internally to do the things that you might want to do. And even if you never got there, even if you quit, even if things didn't work out, that doesn't mean that you have less value. Your value is the same. Your market value may change. Your social value may change, but your internal value is everlasting. And if we remember to hold that one at our center and not put social value and not put market value at our center, and we will feel a little bit better. We'll feel a little bit more constant. Love it. Thanks so much, Dana. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Clitastic Chronicles and found snippets of wisdom that you can apply to your own sexual health. If you like this podcast, share it around with your friends and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're getting your podcast from. This will help us make it easier to find. For more sex positivity, head to our website at smilemakerscollection.com. See you there.